0: We hope you enjoy the show as together we hear how they are making their world better. You know, it's been nearly 18 months since COVID first began to sweep across America. Many of my guests on this show have shared their insights as to what they were seeing from their own organizations or as they interact with leaders around the country. Well, my guest today is both a consultant and a podcast host, and as such, he's in a unique situation to give us all some interesting reflections and insights as to what the state of nonprofits are today. My guest is Dr. Patton McDowell. He started and leads PMA Consulting. Among the many insights he will share in this episode is that he has seen firsthand some of the nonprofits that are really struggling to survive COVID and its impact on their organization. In fact, sadly, he believes that possibly as high as 25% of current nonprofits will not make it through. But thankfully, he believes that overall, for the nonprofit sector, there are a lot more positive signs that he has seen and believes that COVID has also created new and creative options for nonprofits to help them thrive. Enjoy today's show. Patton, so glad to have you on the show today. You know, I wanted to focus my initial questions on your take. As to where we are now, a year and a half out from COVID, like what are you seeing and what are you hearing from your role as both a consultant and a podcast host? And so first, what's the general state of nonprofits from your perspective, 18 months now from the
1: beginning of the pandemic? Rob, appreciate the question. Of course, the opportunity to be with you, delighted to do that. More good news than bad. Lots of conversations like you with nonprofit leaders all over the country. The sector has proven to be very resilient. So I think there's a positive energy around that. You know, we've had to adapt our program delivery. We've had to utilize technology we didn't know how to use two years ago. Of course, the, the donor generosity has been remarkable. Um, evidence of philanthropy is just so impressive and it's nice to see people step up. The, the one issue that concerns me, we'll probably talk about it more than one way. I think there's still a residual stress on nonprofit leaders. You know, the adrenaline of having to adapt to a pandemic carried us. But as I talk to a lot of these leaders, I think they're, they're, they're running out of gas in some cases. And so I am concerned if we don't continue to focus on the mental health and the generosity that they require, we're going to be dealing with turnover issues. And I'm already starting to see, Rob, and maybe one of the trends we'll talk about is the potential for, for turnover in our sector.
0: I could agree with you more on that one. It's interesting you mentioned that. I do want to dig into that a bit. Uh, A side note, you and I have talked about this before, and I've told my listeners before, one of the things we have on my nonprofit that I lead, my day job, so to speak, uh, is a mental health counseling center. And we have 17 staff dedicated to that, and we still can't keep up with the need. And we talk a lot about the community need for mental health and across our country, but what about nonprofit leaders specifically? You're absolutely right. I've seen the same thing, Patton. I think because so many of us, were carrying a lot of the weight of making sure we deliver these services to people in need, particularly during the crisis, and that does take an emotional toll in normal times, and then you add a pandemic onto it. I think you're really absolutely on to something. Okay. Well then let's kind of go into some of the more difficult topics because I I think this is on people's minds. What is your sense of how many nonprofits are still really struggling and maybe won't even make it out of this year? What's your sense of that?
1: Yeah. I don't mean to be alarmist, but I think as many as 25% of the sector is in, in some degree of risk. Relief funding is starting to run out. Many organizations may not pass the stress test, frankly, Uh, if they didn't have the reserves or other financial capital to help keep them afloat. I'm concerned about organizations, particularly in the arts and culture sector, that were based on performance and other kind of event-based revenue. So those are issues that still concern me. And if there's a silver lining, perhaps it's maybe some of this stress on these organizations may force more collaboration and more partnerships and maybe even mergers that simply become a reality if these organizations cannot survive otherwise?
0: Boy, that's 25%. Okay. Uh, that I hope that's not the case, but I, I think that is my sense from the guests I've had on my show. And you're right. It's art organizations. It's, it's, I would say, non-humanitarian organizations that didn't have a direct and still don't maybe have a direct impact in terms of serving with food or clothes or uh, medical help or mental health help. So, I I would uh, resonate with you that sadly, I think that may be right on target. Okay, let's switch to boards a little bit. You know, there's always an interesting relationship, right, between boards and the executive director, as well as just the staff and the organization itself. From your consulting work, again, and, and being a podcast host, Tell me about the board relationship. You know, during this difficult time, have you generally seen a positive and supportive response by boards to their eds and organizations, or more of a competitive or even critical interaction with their eds? What What are you seeing with board relationships and executive directors and their organizations?
1: Happy to report, more positive, far more positive than negative. In fact, pre pandemic, I would have answered the question differently because, like you know well, uh, often executive directors have that. Challenge. Either their board is micromanaging them or they're disengaged. In either case, it's not good. What I found though, there was a unifying purpose of getting through the pandemic. How do we deliver our mission? And so I found a lot more positive dynamic between the executive director, board chair, board leaders. They were literally on the phone, as I know you remember almost daily, weekly, when when it was early on in the pandemic. You're just like, how are we going to deliver our mission? And so that seemed to rally and unify a lot of board leaders. So in answer to your question, very much a positive dynamic. You know, the other thing too, Rob, I saw was a re-engagement of board members. A lot of disengaged board members took advantage of the technology. You know, there's an access through Zoom that perhaps that out-of-town board member who was never showing up all of a sudden was re-engaged because of that access. And frankly, it was a compelling topic. They wanted to check in with their nonprofit. So, again, I hope this is a silver lining and a residual positive impact of the pandemic.
0: You know, it's so fascinating you brought that up in terms of engagement. I personally experienced that, and I know, I think I've told you before, I'm in the Utah Nonprofits Association. That's an organization that supports all nonprofits throughout the state, and I'm on the board for them, and ironically— That's very true. Uh, We have, you know, we're trying to reach in Utah, we're trying to reach the whole sector across the state. And it was difficult to get people that were, you know, four hours away to come to a meeting in Salt Lake, for example, or let alone Park City. So you're right. I noticed that, that people that have maybe a second home or they just were traveling a lot, it was too hard to get to board meetings. Zoom made it very easy and, and it really improved their engagement. So it sounds like you saw a lot more engagement than from board members because of that.
1: Absolutely. I also think it's going to amplify, though, our need as nonprofit leaders to run good meetings because everyone's going to have Zoom fatigue and everyone wants to get back in person to some extent. But I think what going forward, it's going to be a hybrid environment and it's going to be up to you to run a good meeting. And I'll continue to dial in on my Zoom account if I feel like I'm going to have a productive session with you. I think nonprofit, we can't just kind of roll out the same agenda every time if we're going to expect continued engagement like this. That's
0: a great point. That's a good challenge to all my listeners. That I think you're right. For those of us who are leading meetings, the bar has been raised a bit. We can't just rely on, oh, you know, I just am learning Zoom and I'm, you know, no, like we all know Zoom now. And we have to have effective meetings now. We can't just yeah lean back and, and complain perhaps about the technology or lack of participation. So I like that. That's a great point. Well, and that may be one of them a good segue into trends. Uh, What are the trends you're seeing right now uh, when it comes to this pandemic and how nonprofits were impacted by it? In fact, one of the questions I want to lean into is how has COVID permanently impacted nonprofits, either for good or for bad? Uh, And what's that trend line moving forward, do you think, in the next few years?
1: More positive than negative. Again, uh, I am a glass half full here in this uh, analysis. But I do think that there's going to be expectations for technology, virtual access to programming. I think more funders are, for example, not going to require site visits when they found, for example, that they can do effective interaction through technology. So, you know, there's good and bad to that. And I'm not suggesting we go entirely virtual, but I do think a residual effect of the pandemic is going to be we're going to have to maintain access through our technology. Whether it's program delivery, whether it's our meetings—in other words, a lot of meeting policies are going to change. If we're going to not, you know, require people to be there in person, donors I'm finding Rob in many cases are open to a a Zoom meeting now, even after the pandemic. Where as a fundraiser that I have been historically, you always expected to have to do that in person, and I'm seeing through some of my client organizations, donors saying, "No, I'm, I'm fine. You know, I'd rather." spend my time and your time more effectively. And you don't have to come drive four hours to take me to dinner. Let's just jump on Zoom. So it's interesting to see the fundraising component and whether that continues. I do think it will, but that would be my first. I've got one other point, but I don't know if you want to react to that or just hear the other one as well.
0: No, I'm glad you mentioned that. It's interesting. So you've seen people say, yeah, skip the four-hour drive, skip the meal even. I'll just jump on a Zoom call with you. That's really, that is a change because I think you're absolutely right up to this point. You know, relationships are everything. Cultivating those relationships with donors is so critical. That typically means time, having dinners, lunches, or gatherings with them, you know, and traveling to where they are. That is an interesting trend. Thanks for sharing that because I think that's going to be good for my listeners to hear that maybe that's shifting a bit where they can- have zoom meetings again, really intentional meetings. You can't be sloppy with it, but you can maybe save some money in your budget actually by just utilizing zoom
1: meetings. I've had donors literally say that, that they appreciate the efficiency of, of the staff's time. Now, again, I'm not suggesting you start doing everything. You know, you can't just stay in your pajamas on your zoom and expect to be an effective fundraiser. It's still a relationship management game that you have to adapt, but I do think it's something to consider, you know, Rob, one of the most significant trends, I think, coming out of the pandemic is going to be the flexible hybrid work schedules. And we will tell you what I mean. Not everyone wants to stay and work from home, but I do think there's an increased interest in that flexibility. And for nonprofit leaders, what that means is it's going to be a competitive advantage or disadvantage if you can or cannot offer flexibility. I understand some nonprofits, the nature of your work requires you to be there. So let me be clear. But I've been involved in a few searches lately where all things being equal, the top talent is going to choose a nonprofit that allows some flexibility, that I can pick my kids up from school, that I can work from home one day a week. And I think nonprofit leaders, some of them are saying, you know what, I need to lean into that. And, And so I wonder if that's a trend to your good question that we really have to consider, in essence, the HR policies of our nonprofit.
0: That's really fascinating. We had a similar conversation with our own staff here. So from your findings so far, one of the questions I have to, you know, background is proximity is so important, right? With uh, team building, staff connection, cohesiveness. That was one of the conversations we had was, on the one hand, we love the idea of being flexible, having flexibility for people's schedules. But when there's a lot of scatteredness to people's comings and goings that made it difficult then to have a question answer when you need it, or if you need to do a quick ad hoc meeting, well you can't really do that quite as easily. If you know, it's not just that they're on zoom, but it's maybe their, their whole schedule's changed. Now, what are you going to lose by having flexibility on, on the flip side, even though I, I totally get it on the one hand, major corporations are doing this right. Google and, and um, Twitter, and a lot of the social media companies are saying hundred percent, You can just work from home, right? Yes. Uh, But what are we missing on the proximity side, if anything?
1: That's a great, no, great point. And in fact, I think the answer is more in the middle, that I think it's hard for nonprofits, particularly when it is important for the unity of the team, the morale, the connection. What I'm seeing is more what I would call a hybrid schedule, where the, the... uh, as a leader, you might say, look, I need everybody in the office on certain days. I mean, maybe there's exceptions, of course, always, but I'm going to allow you flexible schedules, but we're going to do most of our meetings in person on Tuesdays and Wednesdays and, or something like that. And then there's agreement amongst the team that, okay, those are the days I will be in the office. We'll schedule our meetings where we need FaceTime but then allow flexibility beyond that. And so, because I agree, Rob, it's hard to just say complete work from home. Now, on the other hand, what I have seen some nonprofits take advantage of with this virtual access to talent is that maybe there are some functions or positions that could be literally out of town. And I've seen a lot of rural nonprofits struggle with finding talent to come to their nonprofit. But now they're like, well, you know what? maybe i could have my marketing or social media person be you know hours away literally but at more accessible and certainly a greater level of talent that i could recruit in my small community so maybe that is another way to take advantage of you know virtual access to talent
0: i like that and uh, you know it's a, a good issue to wrestle with like you were saying earlier the top talent every nonprofit, I think it's gotten really competitive now. People are choosing where they really want to work. And I've had people on the show talk about the culture of an organization is often the thing they're looking at as much, maybe more, than just your salary and even the mission. It's the culture that they're joining. And I think that's been fascinating. And I don't know if that's kind of a trend because of our culture, if it's this next generation coming in, uh, maybe it's a combination of all those things that people are just more picky, if you will, they want a good culture. If they're going to invest their time and their money and their talent, they want a good culture. And so flexibility as part of your culture, that's a key thing you're finding. That's really interesting. Absolutely. Well, good. All right. Let's keep going. Um, Now let's shift a little bit to leadership issues in general. As a consultant, and again, you are a podcast host as well, what are some of the biggest challenges nonprofit leaders are facing right now and how are successful leaders navigating through those effectively?
1: Obviously, race and issues of uh, diversity and equity inclusion have been on the forefront of everybody, literally worldwide. The challenge for nonprofit leaders is to how to turn what is just a token statement of affirmation of these issues to actual strategic inclusion. And, and so, the best nonprofit leaders, one, are allowing space for these conversations, both on a staff and a board side. I would suggest bonus points for those organizations that have brought it into their strategic planning discussions, and even more bonus points for those organizations that are putting tangible goals around these issues. In other words, I had a a university board that said, not only are we going to talk about diversity as a board, frankly, all boards talk about it, but they said, we are going to set a three-year goal of having our board composition match the basic composition of our student body. And that's a pretty dramatic you know, change for that board, who demographically were uh, you know, of uh, all white male board, which many of our nonprofit boards are. Uh, and they said, we need to make sure we better represent the, you know, the constituency we serve. So that would be one, Rob, that I see nonprofit leaders having to take on a difficult issue and do something with it.
0: Let me chime in there real quick because I 100% agree with you. What have you seen that's really been effective when it comes to, like you said before, having a great written statement about equity, diversity, and inclusion versus actually putting things into practice, changing policies? What have you seen that really has made the difference for those organizations that have moved beyond just... I hate to use this term, but kind of like the tokenism saying, oh yeah, we're into this. This is a big deal. Let's change our mission statement or let's make something on our website that says we're all about diversity and inclusion, but nothing really changes on the inside. Who are you seeing doing that well and what are they doing to really make a true difference?
1: Um, Literally inviting the voices of the underrepresented into staff meetings, board meetings, It's one thing to talk about the communities we want to serve And don't get me wrong. I think these organizations, these boards are very well-intentioned. They wouldn't be involved and volunteer if they didn't want to help these communities. But it's one thing to talk about these communities. It's another to say, we're going to bring in a resident of that neighborhood we're serving. or We're going to bring in a Special Olympics athlete who literally participates in our programs and talk to him or her about that. Uh, I've speak to Special Olympics because I literally started as an intern there 30 years ago, Rob. So that organization has always been about inclusion and I think is a good role model for that type of inclusion activity. Again, organizations like the one I mentioned previously, setting a target and then bringing in representatives from the target constituencies or the demographics that they want to have, bring them to the meeting. Uh, I mean, you have to make all of them a board member right away, but I do think you can be more intentional about that inclusion.
0: I love that. I love the uh, shout out to Special Olympics. I couldn't agree more. Timothy Shriver has been on the show and he's actually been at our organization. He's become a friend and they have done that from day one. And I think you're right. That is a great example. Anybody else that stands out to you or uh, situations you've seen or a policy that have been changed that to you really... Demonstrate that this nonprofit is moving from talking about equity inclusion to actually doing it.
1: Um, Again, I've seen the best examples within the strategic planning process. And again, too many of us—I'm guilty as well—as a nonprofit leader, we assemble kind of in our ivory tower, taking your strategic plan to a community you're serving or inviting others into that setting. What are you doing, and how can your strategic plan illustrate? what you're saying you're trying to do to be more kind of racially aware and and comfortable in these conversations, because they're not always comfortable. And that's the hard part. But the best examples I've seen, again, have been inclusion in every process, in particular, the strategic plan, and then putting metrics on it. We can talk all day long, but until you talk about literally how your program's delivered in an equitable manner, how your board is represented, and your staff. And this is hard because, again, we don't have the same number sometimes of staff seeking jobs in the nonprofit sector. We have to invest in those communities of color that I think would be more engaged in the nonprofit sector if we are more proactive in getting them there.
0: Well said. Great insights there. Well, we talked about culture a bit, So, so many people are talking about the culture of an organization more closely than ever, as we mentioned before. So how do executive directors or CEOs create the right kind of culture for their organization? Is it primarily something that has to do with their hiring process mostly, or is there a way to turn a culture around if they realize the culture is not healthy that they have, or they've developed a negative culture or even a toxic one? How would you recommend executive directors or CEOs that are listening to this podcast? How can they improve their culture or change their culture?
1: Love the question, Rob. It's it's a common question I get. Um, I've I've had an increase, frankly, in coaching clients who are wrestling with that exact question. Uh, again, you know it, you live it. I think executive directors uh, live a lonely in a lonely world. Sometimes, as we said before, whether or not your board's engaged, you of course are running an organization that has maintained a positive culture. But frankly, I see a lot of our colleagues that don't. Here's what I think. Yes, it is related to hiring. I think it's how you move people out of the organization as the most critical element of culture. In other words, how do you provide a graceful exit for those people that don't fit? And so I'm being intentionally provocative here. But if you maintain a toxic presence on your staff or your board, the culture will not go away. And it does affect your leadership because everyone else on your staff knows that that person, whoever he or she is, is bringing us down. And so there are two ways I would address this. One, you have to be intentional about all of the staff are committed to the mission first. Even if I like you personally or I'm loyal to you personally, you've been here a long time, mission comes first. If you continue to be a negative influence, we're going to make a change, you know, in the next year. I'm careful not to pull the rug on somebody, but we got to make a change. If you can't get on board with us, same with the board itself, Rob, I think you should have in your board job description, what I call the graceful exit policy, sign it once a year, your commitment letter as a board member. And it basically says, if I cannot serve faithfully as expected by my fellow board members and by This organization, I will resign. And so, again, long answer to your good question. I think it's as much about hiring and recruitment, but maybe even more so about how you move people out as it is how you move them in. That's fascinating. I like the idea of the graceful exit and having people
0: sign that every year. That's a
1: great idea. Love that. I think they self select, you know, and and that would be my other point, Rob, in terms of a clarity around your vision, where we're going as an organization has to be crystal clear because then it allows you as a manager to say, all right, folks, we are all going to this next proverbial next level. And if you're not with me, that's okay. But I think, frankly, people then self-select out because they don't necessarily feel like they want to go exactly where you want to go, both board and staff. And that's how you maintain the positive culture you deserve.
0: Well, let's go a little personal this next question. Uh, Give us an example of two leaders who have shaped you personally the most. What about their leadership impacted you, and how did they shape your
1: own leadership today? It is appropriate you bring up Tim Shriver because on my list is his mother, Eunice Kennedy Shriver, who was a fantastic role model. Literally, uh, the reason I got into nonprofit leadership, I was an intern in college. I worked at Special Olympics International in DC, and what I thought might be a fun summer, and really that was going to be it, turned out to be a career-defining opportunity. And it was Mrs. Shriver who established some of the principles that I still use when I work with nonprofit leaders to this day. You know, she was adamant about we all had to be able to articulate with clarity the mission and the vision of Special Olympics. You know, Rob, we were terrified that she might stop us in the hall and make us recite the mission or something, you know. And I think she might have even cultivated that myth. I don't know that she ever really stopped somebody and made them recite. But if she did create that expectation, maybe that's a good thing because I was darn sure I was gonna have the mission ready if she stopped me. And I've thought about that ever since. Could everyone in your organization recite the mission and or the vision? you know, and I think for all of your listeners, I don't mean for them necessarily know it word for word, but I, I don't think there's consistency in many cases. So Mrs. Shriver instilled that in me to this day. I had another leader that her name was Pamela Davies, fantastic president of Queens University in Charlotte, just retired. She was the one who planted the seed about, you know, Patton, you can't just plan to plan. And a lot of nonprofit. I think, Rob, just plan to plan. In other words, a lot of talk. And and so she was good about what are we going to do? And I've looked at every nonprofit strategic plan since with a critical eye. Is this just talk about, yeah, we want to improve alumni relations or we want to do this in a general way? And she would always say, tell me what you're going to do, how you're going to measure it. And that to me was a powerful kind of leadership lesson. I love both of those examples,
0: No, Thanks for sharing that. And it's obvious just a little bit. I've known of you that you are putting those into practice, and you've had some great mentors along the way. Okay, so challenges. As we look at the rest of this year, what are the biggest leadership challenges facing you
1: and your organization? I'm fortunate to work with some great nonprofits. Uh, Interesting challenge, and I think this might apply to to communities all over the country, if not the world. I think there is a pent-up demand to raise a lot of money. So we're coming out of the pandemic. We've held back. We've kind of broken even, perhaps. The economy's still pretty strong. There's a ton of capital campaigns coming, Rob, I think. And I don't know if it's true in your community, but here in the Southeast, and Charlotte in particular, lots of organizations are saying, we got to go do a campaign. That'll be good for some. It won't be good for all. And so as a business, I'm contemplating how much I want to get into the kind of campaign space. But quite honestly, I'm more interested in the leadership space. And it's why it's great to talk to you about it. Because I've got an increasing demand for coaching. And in fact, I'm doing some virtual coaching in small groups. We call it the Mastermind Program. And to your question, that's the biggest... To me, it's a positive challenge. Uh, um, How do you deal with the demand? And what you and I started with, Rob... Because I think coming out of the pandemic, there is that residual kind of fatigue and mental strain that a lot of nonprofit leaders are feeling, and I'd love to help as many as I can.
0: That's interesting. So why do you think it is that, is it just because people kind of put on hold their capital campaign needs and or projects or expanding their programs, or is it just the sense of hey, we are kind of down as an organization just across the board. That's a great way to kind of generate some more excitement is to really have a campaign. And we get donors excited about that. Is it one or the other? Maybe a mixture of both?
1: I think it is a mixture of both. You're exactly right. I think they feel like they're behind. And quite honestly, it's a kind of self-perpetuating now message. Everybody's here. And wow, everybody else is going to go into a campaign. So am I going to fall behind? And so that's not necessarily the reason to do a campaign, which I would counsel people. But I understand it's hard not to feel pressure when everybody around you is starting to raise more money. You're worried, well, they're going to go after my donors, too. And so you have to at least consider it. But I just hope organizations and nonprofit leaders will be thoughtful because funders are not going to fund all these campaigns just because every nonprofit in town decides they want to do one.
0: Good luck with you as you decide to navigate through all of those opportunities that come your way. Um, As I've mentioned a couple of times, you've got your own podcast and your company. So first of all, talk a little bit about the podcast. Tell us about what you do with it, the guests you've had, and then certainly talk about your organization because some of my listeners may want to check out your organization, your consulting work, as well as your podcast.
1: Well, I'm grateful, Robin, because your podcast was one of those I literally studied when we started one here. It's great. And like you, I like to lift up outstanding nonprofit leaders. My target audience is existing or individuals who want to be a nonprofit leader. So I feel like I've got kind of a combination of listeners, those already in the space, those want to be. And so I try to bring on experts that have lived it as well as could speak to some of the trends like you and I are talking about. So some of the technical aspects, because it's a complex job and you know it better than anybody. The mission carries you, but at some point you're managing a complex business. You know, just happens to have a noble mission, but I try to, to attract speakers to the podcast who can speak to those different elements like strategic planning and finance and fundraising and everything in between. And quite honestly, lately, some of this mental health things because not only are nonprofits dealing with or leaders dealing with their own challenges, they're also managing a team who are feeling the stress as well.
0: Well said, and so glad you're providing resources out there for people across the country to learn from. So thanks for all you do to really build up the sector, build into leaders. And one more time, uh, the name of your podcast and where they could find it online.
1: Thank you. Well, my website is my name, pattenmcdowell.com. And the podcast is called Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership. So go to the website. Hopefully, you can navigate your way through any of the resources. The Mastermind program, Rob, is virtual. I've been fortunate to have nonprofit leaders from all over the country participate there. So some of your listeners that might be looking for a, an environment like that, I uh, would be delighted to talk to them about it. In fact, the website offers a chance to connect with me. I'd be delighted to discuss it further.
0: Well, Pat, again, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. Take a break from your own podcast to jump onto mine. and But thanks for your insights. I really appreciate all you had to say. And I think my listeners are going to really appreciate this particular podcast interview just because of all the things you've been gleaning over the last particularly 18 months. A lot of good nuggets in there. So again, thanks for your time.
1: Rob, thanks for having me. It was an honor. And thanks for all the work you're doing in the sector as well.
0: Hey, friends, I wanted you to know that this podcast can be found on both iTunes and Spotify. If you're wondering how to find it, just type in the words Nonprofit Leadership Podcast, and this podcast should show up. We also encourage you, when you go on iTunes, let us know what you think. Give us a review. Give us a rating. We would love to hear what you think of this podcast, and your feedback will help expand this podcast to get it out to as many people as possible. You can also find other resources and interviews of past guests on my website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. Again, that website is non profitleadershippodcast.org. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, keep making your world better.